This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 58. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 58 you're listening to, brought to you by our friends over at Gear Sluts, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, and Focal Monitors. It is Monday the 25th, and I am typically already uh, sitting back drinking coffee, planning the next episode. But as it turns out, I just got back from NAMM, so I am sitting here fresh from dropping off the kids, recording the new show for you for today. So today's show is running late because of NAMM. So we had a great show at the Focal booth with Jim Scott, Rolling Stones, Dixie, Dixie Chicks, Wilco, List goes on and on and on and on, uh, and it includes uh, Slayer and Tom Petty as well. Those are little bonuses to add to there. Anyhow, Jim Scott was really great, and we had a we had a great time at the Focal booth. So that's what's coming up. We'll talk about that. So uh, I'm just breathing in and out and realizing I'm home. It's it's all done with. It was really great. It's 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 quite mind blowing. If you've never been to Nam, it's I haven't been in years, and so I was just, I don't know. I was overwhelmed. I walked in, and I felt the sense of, like, everything moving in or around my head, and it just kind of feeling a little claustrophobic there. Anyhow, I'm back, saw some great people, saw some uh, working-class audio alum, uh, Michael Beinhorn, Sylvia Massey, Andrew Sheps. Ran into Andrew Sheps on the sidewalk um, <clears throat> on my way out from dinner. He was on his way in. Unfortunately, we didn't get a good chance to talk much, but a lot of change happening all over for a lot of guests. Um, uh, we'll be uh, doing, I guess, a catch-up thing with Andrew Sheps, with Sylvia Massey. Sylvia's got a new book out. Um, Sebastian Richard. Moving studios, uh, Pete Dell, maybe uh, switching uh, mastering facilities. <clears throat> Tell you, a lot of change in the air. So, but good stuff, good stuff. Everybody's moving on to good, good things, and and has good things on the horizon. What did I see at Nan that really caught my attention? Oh, right, right, right. Uh, the um, what was it? The little speakers. God, I'm spacing on the name. I can't. The Auratones. Yeah. Used to be in the fake little wood cabinet. Now they're in a dark wood cabinet. And they've reintroduced the uh, the speaker. I think I'm gonna have to get a pair of those. I think they're 350 bucks, 365, something like that. They don't take much power, and I'm thinking about switching out my NS10s and kind of going back. I owned a pair at one time, and I got rid of them. In fact, I sold them to Eli Cruz, and now I'm starting to think, hmm, maybe I should get those back or buy. Actually, I can't get them back. Eli's not going to give them back to me. I sold them to him. <clears throat> so I guess I'm going to have to just uh, buy a pair. Yeah, my throat's a little raw, I guess. I've been talking all weekend. And, uh, that's you know, it's quite loud at NAM, so you're constantly just, you know, really trying to talk above the, of the roar of everything. So what else? What else did I see? Um you know, everybody's just got some cool new stuff. Audio Technica has some mics that they're they're coming out with that uh, you know, eventually we'll get a hold of them and we'll do some tests and show show you what they look like. But really kind of talking to a lot of people about uh, the podcast and what we're doing. Saw some uh some fans of the podcast. I ran into uh Michael Sanchez, David Cook. Great to see the two of you guys over at Hybrid Studios. Also great to see you. Um So, yeah, that's it. Man, I'm tired. 
so tired. Anyhow, you may, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you might see, you might notice, you see that? Look at that. Working class audio hat embroidered. Uh, this is kind of the first generation and uh, working class audio hoodie embroidered first generation. First generation because I say um, the the cool thing is, is my sister uh, in New Mexico is uh, put these together for me. So I think what we're going to do, I've got some extra hats. So I'm going to say the next three people that hear this, that send me their name and address, you can ping me on Facebook. I will send you a hat. I will pay for the postage. I'll send it to you. So uh, hit me up. And if, uh, you know, if you're in Europe or you're someplace far away from where I'm at in California, you know, I'll just send it slow boat on, you know, through the mail, but I'll get it to you. Send me your address. Next three people that, uh, that do that. And I'll, uh, hand, I'll get you a hat. Hoodies were still, uh, kind of just, uh, getting everything right so that uh, eventually, you know, we can, uh, maybe sell hoodies. I don't know. Maybe we will, but I'm wearing one and, uh, I'm enjoying it. My sister really, uh, she do, she does a good job, and she picked out a really uh, some good material here, some good good quality hoodie, nothing nothing like uh, a good quality hoodie. <clears throat> so there it is, yeah. Um, what else did we see? Well, I tell you what, we had a great time at the Focal booth, and we saw all the cool stuff that they have, their cool monitors and such. And I I just got to give give it give props to uh, Simon and everybody at Audio Plus Services who. Uh, who distributes Focal, Stefan, uh, who, uh, Stefan and his crew, who did a great job. Stefan, if you're listening, thank you so much. And, uh, and yes, I will get you a hoodie, Stefan. I know we talked about that. So, um, yeah, not much to say. I guess we should just cut to the chase and get to the interview. Now, the interview, um, the video uh, started recording just after my intro. So uh, when we start, uh, you'll hear Jim just kind of launching right into it. So, don't be alarmed, but we'll uh, we'll have that right here. Let's uh, let's get to it right here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to be back from Nam. Great to have you all listening and watching uh, up on the YouTube channel and on uh, iTunes or wherever you get the podcast. That's it. So uh, let's get into it here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Mr. Jim Scott live from the Focal booth at Nam 2016. Everybody's got their story, and my story was that when I graduated from college, I got a job in my industry, which was engineering, not audio engineering, but uh, um, I was a geologist. I was an engineering geologist, and I did plans for uh, earthquake stabilization and groundwater studies and things like that. And uh, it was a great job. It was really uh, lucrative. I made a lot of money, and I felt very grown up and very adult and I was really unhappy doing that. That really wasn't the kind of person that I wanted to be. I didn't want to be in a corporate world. I didn't want to be in a nine to five job. It just wasn't really working out for me. So after about five years of that, I decided that it was important for me to just find a job that I was happy doing. And it all kept coming back to rock and roll. Like, I'd been in a band when I was a kid. I'd been a roadie when I was a little bit older, and I, my friends were singers, and I just, I just wanted to be in the music business. So, um, you know, the fickle finger of fate pointed me towards the record plant recording studio, and at uh, the tender age of 28, I became a gopher. 
It was the happiest day of my life, except uh, at, up to that point, of course. But it was fantastic. So yeah, I just started a new, a new career at age 28, which really not very old, really, if you think about it. You know, 28, you're young at 28. So that's, uh, that's it. I just, I just wanted to be happy, and rock and roll made me happy. At the ripe old age of 28, did it feel weird to be like being trained by people younger than you? And people that, I mean, at 28, we're, I, would you agree that we're generally kind of cocky? We think we know it all. And did you feel like you had a leg up on the younger ones that oh, were there? Oh, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. I had, uh, I had real life experience. I'd been out on my own. I paid my way through college. I had apartments. I bought and sold cars. I fixed cars. I, you know, I, I was living a full adult, independent life. And then when I went to work at the record plant, everyone was, everyone that was, you know, the gopher and the janitor, they were all, you know, teenagers and early, early 20-somethings. And uh, they just didn't have the experience that I had. And part of doing any job great is, you know, giving your boss, your immediate boss, exactly what he wants. So for me, it was really simple to, you know, you, oh, you want this bathroom clean? All right, so you're going to work eight hours a day. So you get down on your hands and knees with a scrub brush and a bucket of soapy water and you scrub the floor of the bathroom. And the owner, Chris Stone, the owner, walks by and he goes, who's that guy? Nobody else has ever gotten down on the floor. Or you got your head in the toilet scrubbing away. You're cleaning out the, you know, you're washing all the dishes. You're taking them out of the cabinets and washing them and putting them back in you know it's still an eight-hour day you can hide or you can be visible and work so for me it was easier to just get the vacuum cleaner out again and run it up and down the hallway especially when the owner was in his office it's pretty simple you just do good work and be better than everyone else that's doing the same job and you get picked for the next for the next step that that doesn't change whether you're a gopher or a janitor or a engineer or a producer or what about that know? transition from geologist where you're making money you've had life experience and then you go in to do this thing where you're scrubbing toilets and you're probably not you're definitely not making very much so no, i went I, uh, in 1979 i was making seventy thousand dollars a year wow. as a engineering geologist and in december of 79 i went to work at the record plant making two dollars and fifty cents an hour which was minimum wage so i went from making seventy thousand dollars a year to making eleven thousand dollars a year it was all straight wage later we got overtime and benefits but when I first went to work there it was straight wage so I work hundred hours a week make two hundred and fifty dollars for a week and you know this is LA it was still expensive in the 80s you know rent was expensive foods expensive gasoline is expensive so and did you just wind down your expenses your yeah. lifestyle yeah. to support this this being a gopher? Yeah, well I was very lucky that at, at that time I was, uh, I was still single. I really didn't own anything except a van and uh, a drum set and a couple of guitars, so I didn't really have any debt. And uh, then you just figure it out, you know, it's, it's rock and roll. You just, you know, you might as well just stay at work because there's free coffee, you know. You're scrubbing these toilets and, and you're doing this gopher work. How do you make the transition into the control room where people are paying attention to you in that capacity? How did you make that, how did you get out of that? Well, the, my big break, my first big break came with the, uh, when MTV went on the air. MTV debuted in you know, 1981? Those, late 80, I, I believe. Okay. Maybe even closer. There could be 81. I thought it was late 80. But the fact is that MTV became so popular that every band wanted to get on MTV. And the quickest way to get on MTV was to record your single 
at the gig. Film it at the gig and put it on MTV. Most of the early MTV videos were live performance videos. There was very little acting, very little storyboarding, very little producer, director. It was just the gig. So the record plant had four trucks and those four trucks went out on the road to record bands and do videos and they needed people that could drive, people that could think, people that could be trusted with a briefcase full of money and you know I was older and I also had a class C truck driving license from another job so I was invited to go on the road with the record plant trucks and I did I went out on the road I I think I, I think we did 500 shows in two years plus the driving so it would be me and another guy and we would take the truck and we would drive to the gig set up all the mics do a sound check record the gig, tear it all down, put it all away, drive to the next city, set it all up, and we just, we went out on the road and we never came home. That was the best education you could get because it had to sound good immediately. You know, when, they, when somebody counted to four and the house lights went down, it had to sound like a recording. It had to sound like a record because half the time we were doing live broadcast as well. It was going out live over the air. So your mix had to be like a record. So that's a lot of pressure. But I didn't know it was pressure because that was just the only job I had had. It was like, oh, everything's got to be ready at eight o'clock and sound like a record. Okay, no problem. And, and how big of a crew are we talking about in those record plant trucks? Well, there was two guys from the record plant that drove and tech and assistant engineered or sometimes engineered. Usually the band would have a producer and sometimes they'd have a sort of a superstar engineer. But my experience with them is that most of them hadn't done any remotes. So they just let, uh, relied on us to get it all together. And they, then they just sit down and go you know, balance and mix. And what, what, what do you think is the number one takeaway from that experience? Not necessarily a technical perspective, but a personal perspective. Like dealing with people or, or was there any mis serious mistakes that were made that you walked away from that and thought, wow, that's a, there's a major life lesson right there. I don't, there's really no negative from it. The, mo the most positive thing was is practicing getting ready to be ready for anything and to be able to have 60 or 70 inputs on stage and you hear a buzz and you got to figure out what that buzz is in like a minute. So you get to recognize that's the buzz from a bass DI. That's the buzz from a Fender amplifier. That's the buzz from a phantom power mic losing its phantom power. You know, you get, you, you, it's just experience. You get to learn how to solve problems and how to solve them quickly and just how to get everything ready by a certain time. Like there's no, you know, the band's going on. So you've got to be ready. What was next after that? How did you transition out of the record plant, truck mobiles to more you know, at a studio. Well, I met my beautiful wife. I met her, uh, I met my wife in a bar when I was out on the road. I fell in love with her at that moment. I asked her to marry me just a couple of months after that. And we got married a couple of months after that. So suddenly I was still touring all the time, but I had a beautiful wife at home. And I, so I said, well, maybe I should stay home. So I asked the owner of the record plant if I could get out of the truck and into the studio and at least I'd be home. So that was it. That was how. And, and uh, I just decided to stop touring and to stay and become a studio engineer. Were you a staff person technically at, at the record plant? Well, the only staff, there was no staff engineers, mm -hmm. uh, just staff. You know, there was a setup department, maintenance department, of course, janitor, gopher, and then assistants. Okay. And uh, all the assistants, it was a hierarchy. It was the best guy had been there the longest, and he was the best guy 
until he got fired or quit. And then the next guy would move up. So after time, you would, you would finally move up and become like the top guy. And the top guy meant that you knew everything and that you could make it happen and every and that you were you were the best i've read that you you take it very seriously or you took it very seriously at that early stage and you really embedded yourself and or immersed yourself i should say in manuals and the process and trying to figure it all out so that you could be super prepared that that that's from an interview that i had read with you is that well actually that's completely wrong oh i didn't ever read one manual i I found I, I just was it was just easier to just learn. It was easier to just push buttons and learn. I mean, I might have read the manual on how to sync up a couple of 24 tracks, use yeah. a use a links module or something, but um, mostly I was just in the studio all the time and the record plant always had the best recording engineers coming through. You know, all the famous people, Glenn Johns, Andy Johns, Ron Nevison, you know, just the, the best producers for the best rock and roll producers and I'm in a room working with them. So I'm on fire. I'm looking at everything that they touch, everything that they do. I'm over their shoulder. I'm patching for them. I'm setting up their microphones. I'm getting their coffee. I'm keeping their notes. I'm, I'm, I'm learning. And was it Tom Dowd working Tom over Dowd, there? Tom Dowd, yeah, of course, Tom Dowd. And what, tell us of some of your Tom Dowd experiences that, that you can recall. What did you learn from him? What did you observe? Well, Tom was solely and solely about the music. He's very less technical than all the other guys. He was completely and solely about the music. In his later years, he, his, his hearing was such that he only wanted to use his headphones. So he had this gigantic amplifier and a pair of headphones, and that's how he monitored all his records. Um, and he was just such a gentleman and a sweetheart, and he always left at 8 o'clock because he had to go out to dinner. Uh-huh. And uh, that's... If you, can, if you could pull that off, I think that, that puts you in a really... Uh, huh. That'd be great. I, I wish I could leave at 8 o'clock, but I can't. I've got to uh, stay till midnight. But yeah, that's you gotta, how it goes. you got to stay. And, and you talk about... Uh, I've heard you talk about... Or read, the, read you talk about this concept of if you're going to do something, you do it well. And, and this came, I think, as a result of your, your days as an assistant. So if you're going to make a... At the time, if you're going to make a cassette for somebody, you don't just run the cassette. You run it and you listen back to it. Yeah. And then you take that to the person's house. Yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit about Well, that was just the technology at the time. I mean, you it'd be, you know, it'd be quitting time. People are picking up their bags and going home. It might be midnight, it might be one o'clock, and then uh, you know, one of the guys would say, Hey, could you just make me a cassette of all the all the rough mixes from today and bring it over to the house? Yeah, of course. And then the oh yeah, can you get, make one for me too? Uh, um, yeah, I'd like one. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So then you got three or four guys who want a cassette, and they want to hear the rough mixes of the six songs that you worked on that day. So this is all real time. This is get two cassette decks, two cassettes, listen to it, run it, label it, write all the titles, the date, your name, studio, lots of paperwork. And then you got to do it all again, run it, check it, play them all back, make sure they're good. Then you got to get in your car, drive to everybody's house at three or four or five o'clock in the morning. But it was part of the job and it was, wasn't even weird. It was just like, yeah, of course. Yeah, this, this is what we do. This is, this is the service that the record plant provides. And then, you, then you'd have to, if you wanted to, you could come back to the record plant and punch out. Or you could just punch out and go do it and go home. Huh. But it was up to you. I'm sensing a trend here where this started, this, this attention to detail and doing things right started with scrubbing the bathroom floor. And then as you transitioned doing, you know, assistant duties and running cassettes, you also did this well. 
Well, I think it's, I mean, that's, that's what you want to teach your children, you know, like do a good job. You do, you, if, you want to, if you want to be in this business, you know, I mean, uh, there's a very famous producer named John Boylan. John Boylan is a friend of mine and he produced so many hit records, but a couple of them are like the Boston albums, Linda Ronstadt records, Quarter Flash, J.D. Souther, James Taylor. I mean, it was like, he's, he's a, such a gentleman and he's the best guy. And, he, and I actually met him when I was a geologist. I, w- I was doing some work at his house as a geologist. And then a couple of years later, when I was at the record plant as a janitor, he, he said, no, Mr. Scott, what, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm a, I'm a janitor now. And he was like, I can't believe it. He said, well, well, come into the room. Let me show you my room. And it was Studio B at the record plant. And uh, we're looking around and I'm excited. I've been invited in by a client and I'm looking around. It's fantastic. And he says to me, man, these rooms look really great. Well, they were clean. They were nice. All the pencils were sharpened. All the light bulbs worked. Because that was a, you know, record plant was the best studio. And he said to me, you know, Jim, sloppy records are made in sloppy studios. So I remembered that. And I think that has everything to do with not only on analog tape, but on digital files. You know, I get files all the time that are, they're sloppy. Like, no, they're not labeled. They're not crossfaded. There's ticks and pops. There's noises. There's, it's a nightmare. And I, my job, you know, as producer or engineer or final mix guy, I got to solve all those problems. Somebody's got to say, oh, there's a tick. I got to get rid of that. Oh, wh- what is this track that's not labeled? It's called Audio 202. Five. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I. So I got to listen to it instead of like BV1. That would that'd be fantastic if I knew that it was BV1 or Tom Tom. That'd be fantastic. But you don't know. So I, I think it's all about just doing a good job, being intelligent, trying to help your the next guy that's going to get your hands on your tapes. You know, and when we were sending tapes around, man, you had to have a track sheet. You had to have the tones. You had to have labeling. You had to sign things in and out. You had to know where the tapes were going, who was picking them up. And now hard drives, I got, I got road cases full of hard drives at my studio that my, all my clients had just left there. They just walk out and leave them. I got 10 years of hard drives. Hmm. And every once in a while, somebody calls me up and goes, oh my God, do you still have a copy of one of my hard drives? It's like, yep. Oh, could I have it? Sure. You know, you got a FedEx number, but... They just leave stuff behind. And, you know, luckily I'm honest and my, the guys that work for me are honest. But, you know, we always, we keep, a, we keep a backup of everything just in case, you know, the guy who leaves with his hard drives, if his hard drive, if his car catches on fire and he loses his hard drive, I've got a backup. And sooner or later we get them down on DVDs and now we're putting them on flash drives and, you know, they go down. But I, I think it's good to have a, an honest library. But back in the day, that would have been completely reprehensible. Like you couldn't make a copy. If you made a copy of a Beach Boys record, you were going to get killed by somebody. Or if you made a copy of a John Lennon tape, or if you made a copy of, you know, somebody's tape, if you were stealing their tape, I mean, that was just the most horrible thing you could do. But now it's like everyone expects you to make a copy and everyone's just trusting that you're not going to just like share it with the whole world. You know, bad rough mixes, bad vocal performances, bad guitar solos. They're all right there for everyone to hear. And, uh, you know, there's a responsibility for me and you and everybody to, you know, sort of protect that, protect our community. You know, it's like it's those are people with their pants off for sure. You know, and they're (laughs) trusting you. They're trusting you to like help them make the record. And you do help them make the record. But along the way, they expose themselves. So I want to talk a, a bit about your process in a little bit, but I want to I want to get into the transition period of getting.
getting out of the world of gophers and assistants and where you are the one at the helm. Do you have, do you have a memory of when that occurred and, and were there any circumstances well, leading e- e- up to that? Everybody waits for their moment. Everybody waits for that minute. And I was assistant at the record plant and I'd gotten to, I'd finally, I was making $4.50 an hour and I was exhausted. We, you know, we worked really hard, usually about 100 hours a week. So I went into the owner to get a raise. I went in, I said, Chris, it was Chris Stone. I said, I, who, by the way, Chris Stone is being honored tomorrow night as a Hall of Fame tech award. And, uh, you know, he's responsible for my career. I, I love him. But anyway, it was, I went in to get a raise. I said, Chris, I, I got a wife. I, 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 need, I need 50 cents an hour. I need, I need to make $5 an hour. He said, no, Jim, I can't give it to you. If I give you $5, then everybody's going to want $5. You're the top guy. $4.50 is the number. That's it. All right. Well, it's been great. This is my notice. I'm going to have to go find a better job. He was like, that's great. Now you're a recording engineer. Go out there and bring me a client. So I went home, and I didn't get any clients. No one called me. I was sitting there doing nothing. And then as a miracle, the record plant called and said, what are you doing? I said, nothing. They said, well, we have a very difficult artist and a very difficult client, and our assistant engineer is blowing it. Would you come back and straighten this out? Yes, I will. So what it was, it was the police, and it was their... They were mixing the music for the Synchronicity movie. And this was early days of 7.1 surround sound. And we were doing it with film, sprocketed film, and multi-track tape recorders, and a young English engineer who didn't know anything about anything. And everyone was freaking out because every time you had to do another pass, two guys in the film room had to rewind the film, sprocket it up, two tape recorders had to get locked up, everything had to go, it all had to sync up, and then you could mix. And everyone was going crazy. So I went in there, calmed everybody down, made the first couple hours go good. Everything went great. We all became friends. We mixed a movie. Fantastic. So a couple months later, just like two months later, I get a recording, I get a vocal um, voice message from the, the engineer, this young guy named Pete Smith. And he said, hello, mate. Sting's hired me to produce his new album. And I want you to engineer it. So can you come to Barbados and engineer what was going to become the Dream of the Blue Turtles record? So this is my first job. This is my first job as an engineer. I said, yeah, of course, I'd go down there. So, we, so I get, I'm getting paid, I'm flying to Barbados, I'm getting paid $500 a week to engineer and mix Sting's solo album. So we go to Eddie Grant's studio down in Barbados, 224 tracks, you know, and we, and we make a record the old fashioned way. You know, we set up the mics, we do takes, we do tape edits, we do overdubs and everything's great. It's, uh, but that's my big break. You know, I, I, was, I was great, I was great, I was great. I was unemployed and then I got a break. So when I got my break, I was really good. <laughs> I worked really hard and I did the best job that I could. And, you know, awards aren't everything, but the first record, that was the first record that I ever engineered and mixed and I was nominated for a uh, Best Engineered Grammy, not classical, and I lost. I lost, actually, to Sting, who had written I Want My MTV, the Dire Straits song, and that guy, that Neil, guy. D- Neil Dorsman, he was awesome. <laughs> he won the Grammy, but I, I uh, you know, that, that's the story. You know, that's, that's how I got from being assistant engineer to a first engineer with a lucky break. That can be a little bit confusing. It's all new. You're being asked to fly to a remote location, you're being asked to do this job with obviously a, a very well-known artist. How do you navigate, or how did you navigate the financial part of that to say, 
how much do I have to get paid, or do do they do they dictate that? Because there's all there's yeah, there, there was no negotiating. Oh, they told you what you yeah. were going to make. Yeah, and you just and you obviously it's like okay. I said yes. I try to say yes to everything. I, if there's any possible way that I can say yes to a project, I'll do it. And if I if I you know if if the if the money's tiny but the person is uh, worthy, then I can I got. I have some great guys that I work with, and I got a great studio. And maybe it's more important for that music to get made, not necessarily by me, but by one of my guys and at my place, so that this artist can go forward. So it's it's not always about like I, I, I'm a terrible negotiator. I say yes, but it's my spirit is that I wish I could just do everything that I, I get asked to do, and I would if I could. But some people are. It's just they're either not ready, or it's too homemade, or. Or it's just not any good, you know. That's that's right, the problem. Right. But I mean, at that time, it it would have been very unwise for you to say no to Sting. I mean, that got you in the door. And sometimes in those situations, you have to jump in, you know, and 70, say yes. Seventy-five dollars a day and three meals. I, that was great, you know. That what? was fantastic. So what came after that? Um, well, a lot of unemployment came after that. Yeah. I, you know, I got nominated for a Grammy, and and you're riding high. I'm thinking that um, you know, I'm on my way. Everything's going to be great. But I, I, you know, I didn't. I kept working on stuff in town, little demo things and bouncing around. And I was sort of a, you know, all my friends were musicians. So I was always at a club, either mixing the PA or, or fixing it or, you know, roadieing around, carrying everybody's equipment. And it was all entertainment. It was fun. It was happiness. But the next, the next, the next thing that happened was, you know, sooner or later, the, the, the whole record process, it, it takes a while for, you know, a record comes out, it has its cycle and... Sooner or later, people read the credits, and then somebody said, oh, Jim Scott, who's that guy? Does anybody know how we can reach Jim Scott? Well, there's no internet yet. Uh, you know, I got a phone number. I don't have a manager. I don't have a business card. I, you know, it's hard. It's much harder, you know, so people have to go like, does anybody know this guy, Jim Scott? And, who do, who do we have to call to find him? Do we have to call Sting to find him? You know, so, but sooner or later, people started to find me and, you know, two or three degrees of separation. Somebody would know somebody that had my number. And uh, I guess the next big record after that was, um, well, I got a call from Daniel Lenoir. And Daniel said, oh, I love Sting's record. I'm, I'm going to, and I know you have a lot of experience doing remote recordings. I'm going to do a record with you, too. I'd like you to come to Ireland, and we're going to set up in a castle, and we're going to do you too. And I went, this is great. I'd love to. So I'm all excited. I'm going to Ireland. And then he calls. He says, you know, we actually got a guy over here. This guy's flood. I, I don't think I need you anymore. So, so I'm not going. I'm heartbroken. My career's over. But he said, you know, but there's another record in California that I'm going to do when I come back, and I'd like to do that. And that record was Robbie Robertson's first solo album called Robbie Robertson. And, um, you know, I went down, I met Robbie, he played me these songs, or, I don't, I don't know, it, it's a, you'd probably have to be a trivia expert to know that first album, but there's some amazing, amazing songs on there, and uh, he's an amazing artist, Robbie is, and so is Daniel. So we, uh, we, all, we all agreed to work together, I, I rolled down to the village, and we, uh, we started making this record, and we worked on that, I worked on that record six or seven days a week. 12 hours a day for 18 months and we spent all the money that we could get from every record company daniel actually worked on it for a year and then left and went and made a peter gabriel record the so record he went and he went away for six months made a whole nother record and came back and we were still working on it and um and i just ran into bob Clearmountain a few minutes ago who mixed that album for me and i was because I, I had a chance to mix it, 
I mixed it and nobody liked it. And then they, they said, they said, well, we want Bob Clear Mountain to mix it. And I just I burst into tears, you know, like, ah, oh, this is horrible. But it's actually amazing. He, he, you know, I, I, I would have to say now that if, if there were only two faders in the whole world that needed mixing, Bob Clear Mountain could do it better than anyone because he's amazing. So, but anyway, Bob mixed it and, and, uh, and it, the record's beautiful. And Were you torn because you had put so much of your time and effort into that record? Well, and you it, wanted wasn't, to wrap it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a personal thing. It was, we were possessed by the music and possessed by the record. And there was, it was, it's a very intricate record, but we were on a 24 track and a 16 track. So there was little, you know, Swiss cheese recordings. There were little magical moments in between other magical moments. And, and you know, to lay, to lay out a rough mix was, was hard because there'd be four or five things on every track. All, you know, all the color moments, like a, like a tambourine in the chorus and a hand clap in the pre-chorus and a, you know, a guitar note, you know, coming here or there. All, you know, we, oh, we, got, we need one more track. We need one more spot. And you'd be looking and trying to remember, oh, there's a hole here. We can record on this. It, it wasn't just like, oh, give me another track. It was only so much real estate. We had a 16 and a 24 and two tracks of time code. And, you know, it was just a little, it was a different world. So I felt very protective of the record. Sure. Because I didn't think anybody else could understand it. But obviously I was wrong. All right. Taking a break here from our interview with Mr. Jim Scott, live from the Focal booth at NAM 2016. Uh, saw two microphones that caught my attention at the Audio Technica booth when I was at NAM, and I was talking to Gary Boss there about them. Um, first of all, the AE2300 dynamic cardioid mic. And there's a little press release out there about it. And some of the bullet points here that it says it excels at highest PL applications. And it has a proprietary double dome diaphragm construction that improves high frequency and transient response, maintains directionality across the entire frequency range, and has minimal off-access coloration. Uh, so that means the frequency response is nearly identical at 0 degrees, 90 degrees, and 180 degrees, which helps to maintain phase cohesion in multiple mic setups. Switchable low-pass filter, low-profile design. That is going to have a U.S. street price of 269 Now, the other mic that they have out, the ATM-230, it's a hypercardiodynamic uh, instrument mic, all-metal construction, once again, handles high SPL situations, uh, rare earth magnet for improved output and transient response, low-profile design permits versatile placement around drum kit. What's interesting about the 230 is the street price is 139 which is quite low, but you can get a three-pack for $349. That's good. That's a nice price. I like that. I like that a lot. Anyhow, so two new mics from Audio-Technica, and uh, we'll hopefully get uh, copies of those so we can uh, take a listen to them and put them through the test, set up some drums maybe, do some recording. What a great idea. I love that. All right, well, let's get back to it here on the Working Class Audio Podcast, our interview with Jim Scott at the Focal booth live at NAMM 2016. These in-between moments when, you know, you get, you get a high point, you get the Sting record, or you're going to work with Daniel Lanois, but then there's all those, it's, these are peaks and valleys. And in those valleys of that time of waiting, were you stressed? Were you, were you worried that, am I actually going to work again? When am I going to work? How am I going to pay the bills? What, what's going through your head? And at any point did you think, Oh, screw this. I'm going to go be a geologist and yeah, go, no, go well, back never, to it. I never thought that. Okay. I never thought I'm going to be a geologist. But I think all the time, like, well, may, maybe this is it. You know, if I don't get a phone call for a couple of weeks or if I'm not booked out for, you know, I mean, I'm not booked out for months at a time. I never was. I, I just always sort of worked. 
you know, things just always came up. And, uh, you know, like even now, you know, I, I was working yesterday on my studio with my, uh, my cool guys helping me put in my new... Neil Baldock is here, the great Neil Baldock from New Zealand is here helping me out. Um, they, I think about it all the time. If, if I don't have a job, I just wonder, well, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe nobody wants an old guy with a Neve console. You know, maybe everybody's at home now. Everybody's in the box. Everybody wants Total Recall. Everybody wants what they want. And maybe they don't want what I do anymore. And I think about it. And then I, you know, I go out in the backyard and get out the chainsaw, cut down some trees. I feel a lot better. Come inside have a couple cocktails, and then the phone rings. <laughs> and it's, a, it's, it's like, that's how it I'm goes. Glad, I'm glad you do the cocktails after the chainsaw yeah. and not before the chainsaw. Yeah. That always helps. Well, let's, let's talk about right now. So you currently have a studio called Plyer's Studio, and that, I believe, came from the name of a friend's band that rehearses it at the studio. Yeah. You have 5,000 square feet. You have a Neve console. And I think you've got probably one of the largest collection of uh, exotic rugs of anybody that I've seen. Have you ever seen the picture of, of, of his studio? How do you feel now? I mean, you, you've spent a number of years doing this. You've seen some trends come, you've seen them go. And now we're, we're as you had alluded to, you talked about everybody's in the box. Everybody wants Total Recall. Does anybody even want this, you know, what I have to offer? But it seems people keep coming back to you because when I would go and check on your on your credits, there's there's recent records that are either being mixed or coming out on your part. So obviously people keep coming back. So I think we all have we all have our strengths. So my question is, is what is your superpower? Why do you keep working? Well, I keep working because I, I really love it. I love it. It's a great job. Um, 99.9 of the people that that I work with that I in my entire career everyone has been great I've I've loved every artist a couple of people are a little picky some of the people get a little bit of a bad attitude but they're artists you know you, you it, part of your job is to you know keep them on task and to you know find ways to get them back on the happy train you know like doing good work instead of just whining about bad work you know it's I, I do it because it's the best job in the world, and I'm good at it. And I, I, I wouldn't know. There's no other job that I could do. I don't want to do any other job, you okay. know. I, and I, and I don't want to retire. You know, I don't want to. You know, I have plenty of time off. Don't get me wrong. I don't work every day. I, I used to work about 275 to 300 days a year back in the day with you know my other clients. And now it's probably down to about 200 days a year. So that means I got, you know, 150 days a year off. That's a lot of that's a lot of days off. That's more than just the weekends, you know. That's that's a lot of time off. That's weeks at a time off. So I I got plenty of time to do nothing. I got plenty of time to play golf. I got plenty of time to do the yard work. I got plenty of time to paint the house. I got plenty of time to do, you know, all the stuff that needs to be done in your life. But I'm always, but I just like yes. Whenever I get a call about a job, I'm just like. Like, yes, this is great. All right. I'm still working. Send me the songs. Let's start the process, you know, yeah. and like, that's it. You listen to the songs. You talk about it. You start getting excited. Uh, who's coming? Do you want me to get a drummer? Do you want to, you know, do you want to, where are you coming from? Do you want me to bring, you know, what do you, do you want to use my stuff? Do you want to use your stuff? You know, it's fantastic. It's, it's, um, it's great. So why do you think people, what? What is it that you bring to the table now that you feel people keep calling you back for? Because if I go over your credit list, there's a lot of repeats. There's a lot yeah. of people that keep coming back to you. What is it? 
Um, I don't know. I, I do a really good job. I work hard. And as the, you know, as the business has gotten more fragile, I mean, back in the day, you know, the day, the 80s and 90s, 2000s, I don't know, pick a decade. There was, there was always more money to spend in the past. Record companies were very powerful. They had a lot of money. They had to spend money to make money. And, you know, looking back on it, a lot of the records that I made, you know, not, not the big stars, obviously, not the, not the superstars, but there was a lot of records on there that you've never heard of. And record companies would say, oh, yeah, here's a, here's a really terrible band from, you know, L.A. or Arizona. Let's sign them, make a record or two, and then if we're lucky, if we have a hit, great. But we're probably not going to have one. I mean, that's not a conversation that I ever had, but I'm sure it was conversations that were had in record company Monday morning meetings. Like, they would, they would throw a quarter of a million dollars at a band that they knew was not going to have a hit single because they were making so much money selling millions and millions of records by their, by their roster artists that they needed to spend money. They needed to, they needed to hemorrhage money so that they didn't pay taxes on it all. They, they needed expenses. So there's a lot of records that we all do that are just an expense for somebody. I've done a lot of them, and I'm sure you have too. And it's, uh, but, what, but the difference, back to your question, it's like, why do I keep getting called back? Because I've been able to figure out, I can make the same quality, I feel like I can make the same quality record that the budget used to be $250,000. That's not what I got paid. I mean, that was for everything. Studio, cartage, food, travel, you know, three rooms at the Oakwood, rent cars, everything, you know, tape, you know, a a big fancy studio, you know, a $2,000 a day studio. You know, you can spend a lot of money real quick. But I can do that, I feel like I could do that same quality of work for about a tenth of that price. Because that's what people have to spend now. People come to me all the time with like, you know, I think we can put together twenty-five or $30,000. Can we get, can we make a record in two or three weeks? Yes. You're the guy, you can do it. Yes. Now, the way to do that is to, number one, be ready. Like when the band walks in, I'm ready. It isn't like, oh, you're all here, great. Well, where do you want to put the drums? Like, no, no, no. When the band walks in, I've already done a complete sound check. I've got, if they want to use my drums, I've already got them mic'd up and I already got a sound. At least a start, you know, like it could change, but I know everything works. Same with the bass. If they want to use my stuff, it's all plugged in. I got a compressor, I'm set. I, you know, they walk in, it's like, yeah, well, you know, we could have a sandwich and then we could start, start playing, you know? Let me hear you hit the drums. Let me hear that kick drum. Boom, boom. Good. Snare, bang, bang. Snare, yeah, good. Tom, tom, boom, boom. Great. Right down the line. You know, let's, let's hear the Hammond organ. Let's hear the harp string ensemble. All right, fantastic. So I can pull that session together in, a, in 20 minutes. I mean, I'm there the night before setting it all up. But when the band hits the room, I already recorded everything, a sound check on everything, and I already made a headphone mix. I, I sat at everybody's station, and with me and my guys, we, you know, we record a whole band, one, at one, you know, one track at a time. But we get them, so when they put on their headphones, it already sounds like them. It's not like, how do these headphones work? Oh, God, uh, you know, everything's ready. Everything's labeled. Everything's good to go. And then... I kind of sit there like an Olympic judge. You know, I got, a, I got a piece of paper on my lap and every performance I'm making a chart, I'm making a You're map. Hold, are you holding it up? No. <laughs> but, I mean, I, nobody wants to, you can't do 10 takes and say, well, 
wow, we must have it by now, don't you think? Come on in, let's all listen to 10 takes. He's like, we don't have time for that. They do 10 takes and I say, we got it. I know we got it, because my map looks amazing. Give me 10 minutes, we're gonna cut one together for you. So we chop together the tracking date, you know, and I always cut great big chorus, verse, chorus, solo, done. Play it back, it's done. You know, if somebody says, ah, I don't know, that fill going into the second chorus. Okay, great, we'll get you another fill. Let's do it. Same thing with the vocals, same thing with the guitar solo. Before we even start the record, I got all the vocals written out. I got a chart. The first time he ever sings it, I got my little shorthand. I'm making notes on everything, every word, every solo, every tambourine hit. I know where the loose ones are, I know where the tight ones are, and it's just a matter of concentrating and paying attention because you don't have time to listen to everything over and over and over. You got to commit. You got to know where the good stuff is and be right. And so that's how I get called back. You spare the artist the pain of the studio. You let them come in and it sounds like you have it all, You obviously you have it all dialed in instead of them showing up and taking, you know, all right, let's take three hours to get drum sounds. Yeah, those, no, those, that's not in your, those, that's not in your day, way Well, those days things. are over. Nobody, nobody's got that kind of time. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, I'm only, I've been in my session. I'm the only guy I've ever worked with since, you know, well, since I left the record plant in 1984, I've always been the engineer. I've never seen anybody else engineer anything since 1984. It's just been me. I've never been to, you know, you probably have seen it. You know, there, there, there's, there isn't really like a recording engineer bowling league. There, like engineers don't get together and hang out unless they're friends from, you know, and have social time together. But there isn't like, a, and it's kind of weird. Like other, I've discovered that other engineers don't want you dropping by their session, you know, because their sessions and, you know, they're working on their record. It doesn't sound like a record yet. So they don't want people coming in and judging, you know, it, you can hear it when it's done, but it's, it's not like, you know, a guitar player can walk into any session and like, oh, hey man, great, how you doing? Oh, great, hey, check it out. You wanna play on this, you know? But engineers, not so much. So uh, my experience now is that to make records really quickly, it's gotta sound like a record really quickly and you have to make decisions really quickly and you have to be right really quickly so that you don't end up either mixing for free at the end of the project <laughs> or trying to figure out- Or like, at a discounted rate. Well, it's just like, we just need six more days. We don't have any more money. It's like, well, I know, I know that's true, but I'm in the same boat as you are. You know, I, you can't spend more money and I can't spend more money because when I'm working, I'm paying guys. I'm paying rent. I, got, I buy food for the studio. I buy drinks for the studio. I pay guys. I pay the rent. You know, those are, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm like everything now. I'm like the food budget, the cartage budget, the studio budget, the engineering budget, the catering budget. That's, if that's what you want to spend, you're basically going to give it all to me because there's no other person to give it to because I provide everything. And I've invested in everything from drum sets and amplifiers and guitars, you know, to wine lists and food and sandwiches. And, you know, I, I, it's, it's just what I do to make, my life, to make my life better and to make my client's life better. I, I, we don't even need to leave the building to go get something to eat. We, we eat at the studio. You're kind of a combination freelance recording engineer and full service studio oh, it's combined. Full service. Yeah, it's full service. Yeah. I hear that you don't do recalls on mixes. Well, I can't. I can't. I don't I mean in in the old days, in the old days pre pro tools, you could do uh, a recall cuz the SSL computer had a total recall. That also meant you had to go to the patch bay and write down all your patches and go to the outboard rack and write down all your outboard. And that took a lot of time. And then they said, well, let's do a recall. So you'd set it all back up and it wouldn't sound the same because there was too much analog, too many variables. 
So now with Pro Tools, obviously, you know, the word processor aspect of mixing in the box, which is really awesome, I just don't do it because I don't know how to do it. I, I, I t explain to my clients that I'm mixing on a console, an old console from 1975, and it would, it's impossible to return every button and every knob to the exact same sound to make it sound exactly the same. It's impossible. I mean, the, the amount of water that's coming over Hoover Dam is different. So the electricity coming to Los Angeles is different, and it affects everything differently. And it's impossible to do a recall. But I will do a mix until they like it. I'll stay up all night until they like it. And if a couple of days later they want me to do it again, I can do it again faster than I could write it down and, and re. I could just match it up by ear. If they want me to redo it, it's because they don't like it. So why would I recall it? I'll just do it again. So... How do you deal with, uh, there's a, I mean, a generation of artists coming up that are very DAW-centric, and they're kind of brought up or used to the idea of instant recall, hey, can you move this up a tenth of a dB, can you do this, can you do that? How do you, how do you deal with artists that come at you like that and expect that, that kind of a, a nitpicky style of working? Well, most of them don't. Obviously, most of, the, most of the people that I've worked with the last 10 years, the 10 years that I've had my own studio, they're all, they're all much braver than that. They all have much more confidence in that. And they're not so worried about a tenth of a dB. They just want to hear it. They want to hear it great. They want to hear it rock. They want to hear it in their car. They want to hear it on their computer. And then they're done. Like it's, honestly, the clients that I have now are all very, very brave. And they get it. They understand. They don't want to, they don't want to keep working on the record. They want to finish it. And, you know, I mean, you just got to face facts here. Like, who's mixing this record? Is it somebody at home a month later who has a bright idea and says, you know, could we just maybe hear it with the tambourine out in the second chorus? It's like, yeah. Why? You know, it's like, is that going to make a difference? It's not going to affect sales. If you want to hear it because you want to hear it, fair enough. But I can't do it for free. And neither. And hopefully, the people that are mo mixing in the box, hopefully you're not doing it for free when a guy a month later calls you up and says, hey, we need, we need, you, to, we need you to send us a mix that sounds like this. Oh, we do, do we? Well, can I bill for that? Like, you got to take time out of your day. I don't, you know, maybe you'd rather sit on the back porch with your wife or your girlfriend. No, no, you got to go sit in front of your computer, call up the old session, make sure you still got all the same plugins, make the change, run it. This is all real time. You know, even, even if it only takes an hour or 20 minutes, I, I don't know how long it takes because I've never done it, but I, I know that there's a certain time investment that takes you away from your day. So if you can't bill for it, I think that's a, that's, why are you making, why are you working for free for these people? You know, it's like, you need to be compensated. If fair is fair, I'm sorry. You know, when the guy, when the pool guy comes to clean the pool, it's not like, hey man, do you mind coming tomorrow? Just give it one more little scrub. Just, I got some friends coming over. That'd be cool, right? <laughs> no, I'll come back next Tuesday. Like, oh, okay, yeah, fine. Percentage of uh, label-based work versus bands that are no longer signed or, or that, that don't have a label. What, what is that ratio now like? Uh, you know, I bet it's 70-30. 70% of my clients are self-financed. 30% of my clients have some sort of a little tiny record company. That might even be worse for them than being independent. Do you, you know? find that you get paid quicker by the ones that are self-financed? You, oh, yeah. you don't have to wait for like... 90 day, you know, now and even, and even, I, you know, honestly, those days are kind of over. I won't, there's not enough money going around. There's not any, there's not none of this, there's no, there's no billing, you know. Yeah. It's like I, I humbly ask for, you know, like a third of the money up front. Yeah. And then I humbly ask for all the rest of it on the last day when we're all, when everyone's high fiving and 
exchanging addresses and promising to stay in touch, that's when I get the rest of my money and you get your hard drives. So how does that work? Like if you're working with a, a, a band that maybe was once signed and, and is self-financed, independent now, and they come at you and say, hey, Jim, we got to do a new record. Uh, do you have to go through those layers of bureaucracy with management to get to, this is what I need financially to do this? Or can you just, can you well, have I, a discussion with the lead singer who may be the boss of the band and say, um, I need this much? Well, like I said earlier, I'm a terrible negotiator, so I don't negotiate. I okay. have a I have a manager, uh, he's been my friend for over 25 years. He's, he's not like in part of any company, he's just a, just a guy. He manages some artists, he manages some bands. He, ma he used to manage a couple other engineer guys. And he's just a sweetheart. And he's been in and, out of, in and out of the business for a long, long time and works at a high level and, uh, and he does my negotiating. But it's really pretty simple. It's just, you know, we basically, you know, they'll come and say, the band will say, well, we got $25,000 and we want to make a record. And then we'll look at it, we'll, I'll listen to it and figure it out and say, well, you know, that gets you, that gets you 15 days. We've got to do the record in 15 days. That's it. Top to bottom. Top to bottom. In and out. Mick, done. Okay. I don't master, so that's another expense for them. But um, yeah, the whole negotiating, uh, you know, I haven't talked to a lawyer in, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. I just sort of stopped. I used to spend thousands of dollars on every project negotiating my royalties. Well, there's never any royalties. Even on, even on huge bands that make huge amount of money that I have royalties on, I don't get royalties. And if you want to go well, audit I, the label, that's going to cost you a certain level of money to get there. I will take this opportunity to quote my friend Tom Petty. He said, they will fight you with lawyers you could never afford. And that's the truth. So, uh, you know, I'm a simple guy. I'm just a one little one man band. I have, you know, filing cabinets full of contracts and they're all valueless. So, you know, I think if you want to, if you're a songwriter, you might have a chance for some publishing or some sync licensing or that kind of thing, but a royalty participant, a royalty of what? You know, no, records aren't selling. They're, being, they're still being stolen. And I even if they're not being stolen, you know, I, there, no one, there's not enough records being sold to recoup any kind of budget. So I haven't, I haven't had a contract or anything on any record for at least 10 years. Why? why? You know, I mean, I'd, I'd have to pay a lawyer to read it, and this is not going to matter. You just keep it simple. You just get a, yeah. a, a, a chunk of dough to work over a period of time, and you take care of business in that time. Yeah. It's, it isn't complicated. It's simple. You know, just say yes and work, you know, and I don't know. I, I didn't get into this business to make royalties. I got into business to, like, hang out with musicians and drink Jack Daniels and listen to loud music and work on, you know, buy equipment and... You know, it's a lot of fun. Do you ever fight with an artist? No, no. And, and when artists are going down a path that you think might be ridiculous, how do you how do you how do you stop that? Well, sometimes you can, and sometimes you can't. I usually handle it like this: like, let me play you something that I think is amazing, and then I play them something that I think is amazing. And if they say, yeah, but you know, I don't. Here's why I, I don't like that because. I want it to be different now. I hate the guitars. I, I hate, I want it to be more this. I want it to be more that. It's like, okay, that's what you want. You, you got to hear what I liked, but you know, my picture is not going on the cover of this record. You know, I don't have to go out and play bars and support this record. I'm here to help. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not anybody, you know, I'm not Phil Ramone or, you know, Rick Rubin, my friend, Rick Rubin. I worked with Rick for, I don't know, 15 years. I did all his records for about 15 years. Rick's amazing, you know, and when Rick says, 
oh, well, we're going to do it like this. It's like, well, that's exactly how we're going to do it then. And no one questions it. But I don't, I, I'm not a musician. I don't, I'm not a songwriter. I, I don't have any of that. I don't have any of that experience. So I'm a, I'm a service organization. I'm a good engineer. I'm a good mixer. I'm a good producer. I know how to budget. I know how to handle people. I know how to keep things light. I know how to make a cocktail. I know how to get a record across the finish line. That's all. You just got to learn how to make a good cocktail, and that's the key to all of it, isn't it? Comes in handy. Yeah. Tell me, you, you have a family, right? I do, yeah. You have a wife. You've been with her for many years. You have kids? Yeah, I got two kids. And how I've been, been married uh, 33 years. How old are your kids now? My kids are 27 and 24. Tell me about what I always love to ask, work-life balance. I'm, you know, long time married, have two kids. Yeah. How have you made this work? and keep the family, keep, you know, stay involved? Well, I have an incredible family. Uh, the, it's my wife who holds it all together. She's the brains of the outfit. She, you know, she, she does the books. She does the taxes. She makes sure the kids have shoes. Well, they're grown up now, but she did. She makes sure they had piano lessons. She made sure they had pencils for back-to-school days. She, you know, that she, they had the note for the field trip. You know, my wife does all the adult stuff in our relationship. I do all the work and make all the money. And just one little piece of advice that I'm just going to share with you now. If you're ever on national television for any reason, make sure you thank your wife and tell her that you love her because it will smooth everything out. <laughs> Dixie Chicks? Dixie Chicks. Dixie Chicks. Go, Gram, Grammy Award for uh, which record? Taken the long way. So the Dixie Chicks won everything a couple years ago, and it was a great record. It was a lot of fun. We all fell in love with each other, and, and it's fantastic. And they kind of swept the Grammys. So, you know, album of the year, we all go up on stage. Natalie speaks. Emily speaks. Marty speaks. Off we go. Fifteen minutes later, record of the year. Off we go. Natalie, Emily, Marty. We all go down. Last award of the night. Big finish, fantastic, we win! Up we go, Natalie speaks, Emily speaks, and Marty grabs me by the shoulders and pushes me up to the microphone. I'm the last guy to speak at the Grammys. Thank your wife, that's how it happened. Tell me about your financial advice for, for up and coming engineers who are getting into this. We're surrounded by a lot of temptation in, in this, uh, this convention center. There's a lot of pieces of gear we're all taking pictures of, drooling over, we get we see pieces of gear, we start to brainstorm how that piece of gear could change our, our yeah. workflow, our career. How have, you kept, how have you kept your shit together? Well, um, I, you know, I don't really, you know, it's a funny place for me to be here at the NAMM show. I, I, I just installed my second Pro Tools rig yesterday. I, was, I, had a, I bought my first Pro Tools rig in 2005. I was still running 7.3 at my studio up until yesterday. I don't use any plugins except for uh, gain and EQ1. Those are the ones that I use. I also use L2 to send a CD home with a little more oomph. Um, so I don't really know what's for sale and I'm probably not going to go look to see what's for sale because I'm not buying anything that I don't need a hand truck to move. You know, like I'm, I'm just one of those guys. I like Wurlitzer pianos, real ones. I like Fender Super Reverbs. You know, I like Neve consoles. I like LA-2A compressors. I like things that are, you know, I like things that, like, when they break, you can fix them. 
you know, that it, it's all it's all good. Uh, but I would, you know, my father gave me advice one time. He just said, you know, buy quality. I think that's kind of it. You know, buy something that you need, but buy something that's really quality. Because if you buy some something that's really cheap and kind of a piece of junk, you got something cheap and it's a piece of junk. Uh, that, that's not going to make anything better. Maybe for a minute, but you know, sooner or later you're going to quit using it, and then that money's gone. So I I decided when I was going to build my studio. And I thought about getting, you know, a digital. I knew I had to get Pro Tools, and I, they were talking to me about getting a digital console, and I just couldn't do it. So I, you know, I bought a Neve console, and I love it, and it's fantastic. And I hope that someday when I sell it, you know, it's worth something. I, I, it's been it's been awesome, and it sounds great. So I guess that's what you got to buy. You got to buy something that's awesome and sounds great, whatever that is. It doesn't have to be old. It can be new. I'm sure. It's, I'm sure there's new stuff that's amazing. I, I'm just, I just can't have that conversation because I, so I don't know. It seems like you've you've bought the, the the gear that you need to make records, and you don't continually obsess over the new stuff, and you concentrate more on the artists and the song. is is kind of the impression that I get. I do. I concentrate on the music, and I concentrate on having a good time, and having the people have a good time. Because it's supposed to be fun, you know? What's your preference for mixing with people sitting behind you going, can, can you turn the snare drum up? Can you- oh, 100% better if the client is with you in the room. Especially you have to move, especially if, if, it's, if you have to do something quickly. Because if you make a mix, well, you know, if the band is in Chicago and you're here, you upload them. If you're going to send them a full bandwidth, you got to upload it, and that takes 10, 15 minutes, or five minutes, whatever it takes. They got to be in a place where they can download it and listen to it, and then call you. So you make a mix, print it. Every one of these things takes five minutes. Print it, upload it, send them an email, they email back, they download it. Oh wait, they're not available. They're just walking into a movie. They'll be out in an hour. They'll call you, you know, call you in an hour. I'm on an analog console. What I can't to do, do. I can't do anything else. Oh wait. I got a bar at my studio. No problem. No, I mean, the point is, if the artist is sitting there with you, you can say, what do you think of this mix? And he goes, ah, you know, I think it's great. Let me, let me hear more bass. You turn the bass up. Yeah, that's good. All right, good. Let's go check it in the car. That's too much bass. Let me hear more guitars. Okay, more guitars. Out to the car. That's great. I love it. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the communication is just a thousand times faster. If you have to upload and download, you're, I mean, I guess it might be, you know, again, it's like analog versus digital. Like if you can just recall that mix with the, you know, with the push of a button, then, it, then I guess it doesn't matter. But for me, I'm sitting there in front of the console and the clock is ticking and we do better work quicker if the client is there. And it's always better if there's only one guy you got to run it through. If you got to, if it's a committee, it's six opinions. And that's not that impossible, but... It's harder. You know, everyone deserves their respect. The drummer wants to hear more drums. Bass player wants to hear more bass. It, it, it's, these aren't new phenomenon. It's, but to go, through all those, to go through all those different versions, when I feel like I already gave them the right one, is harder and slower well, and do, more expensive. And, and people, they can't afford it. Do people come at you and ask you for stems and all of that crap? They ask, but I... Again, you know, I, I'm on a console. On the back end of my console, I got a GML equalizer, little top, little bottom. I also have a pair of 
compressors. Sometimes it's a pair of 2254s that are in the console, and sometimes it's a pair of 1176s. Mono, double mono. And when I make the mix, the whole console is excited, compressors are slamming, EQ's grabbing everything, and we make the mix. Mix sounds great. Now when you make a stem, all right, well, let's make a stem. Let's turn everything off except the drums. So if the drums are, I, don't, I mean, I don't know how to describe this, but if the drums are 50% of the sound of the record, okay, well now the compressors are only working at 50% power and the equalizers are only grabbing 50% of all the frequencies that, that, that they could grab. So okay, fair enough, we print that. Now let's do a bass stem. Well, the bass stem probably isn't pumping like it would be if it was in with everything. In fact, it might be too loud because the compressor was probably holding it in place. And now that there's not all this other stuff, the bass is just gonna be like flopping and bouncing. And so you print, you know, how many stems do you print? Drums, bass, stereo guitars, stereo keys, stereo backgrounds, guitar solo separate, lead vocal separate, double separate, vocal effects separate. That's a lot of mixes. That's another dozen mixes at five minutes a, a pass times 12 songs on your record. That's two more days of studio time just sitting there watching, watching a stem be made. All right, well, then you, you know, then you line all those stems up and play them back. It doesn't sound anything like the mix. I've done it. I've tried. People want stems. So I, I'm, and I understand why stems are important because you sometimes you, Toyota calls and we, we love this music, but we can't, all we want is like the rhythm. Take the vocals out, take the solo out, take the horns out. <laughs> Toyota, absolutely. <laughs> Here's the stem, <laughs> send the check, send the check. So I understand why artists want stems. But as far as like rock and roll music, I, I, I don't, they don't work for me. They don't sound anything like the record that you worked on. I think they're valueless. And if it's on Pro Tools anyway, just do it yourself. Just open the Pro Tools file and throw the drums up and throw the keyboards up and throw the guitars up and send it to Toyota. Who cares, you know? Just do it. Get the check. So, stems. Budgets. Continually shrinking. How do you deal with that? Because you've got this built, you own this building? I lease it. You lease it, okay. So there's that monthly expense always there. There's insurance, there's electricity, there's water, there's all of this stuff. And it's, it's not just you. You've got a couple people working in and out of the studio, maybe an intern, assistant, your assistant. Your... I, I, just, I, have, I have two really great guys, a guy named Kevin Dean, who worked at Sunset Sound for a long time, super talented guy, and I have Neil Baldock, a friend of mine from New Zealand. We made records together down there. He's been helping me a lot. So I have two world-class, fully qualified recording engineer, producer guys who work with me, and I pay them fairly. I don't think I overpay them, but I try to pay them fairly for their time and their expertise. And so that comes right off the top. You know, I got to pay those guys first. They can't wait for their check. You know, I've got to, when they bill me, I pay them because I'm, I'm the company. I can't call them up and go, well, I didn't get paid yet, dude. I can't pay you. Sorry, that, that is wrong. That's not right. And my rent, I got to pay the rent. I can't tell my landlord, well, I didn't get paid yet from my gig. It's like, that's your problem, man. It's like, so yeah, it's, it's much harder. Um, it's harder to own a studio, but I do better work and it's, 
again, it's more fun, and all my stuff's there. You know. Do you do you stick to your guns on the rate? Do you just say, no? You can't. There's this no, is it. I, I got a line that I can't go below, and if the line is is doesn't, if it's not worth it to me to go over there and make you know ten dollars an hour, then I'll throw my ten dollars an hour back into the pot and let one of the other guys do it. Um, I'd like to get a little something for the studio. But honestly, it's really not a big deal. It's like most of the time, people have enough money for me to figure out how to do the gig. Mm -hmm. And the hard part is, is that you got to work 12 or 14 hours a day, you know, 14 or 15 days straight to hit these deadlines. And it's, it's really hard. There, there's no taking a night off. There's no taking weekends off. Almost everybody travels in from out of town. You know, it's... Look, my... Everybody's... Everybody's got their little spot. Everybody's got their laptop or a spare bedroom or a garage or a shared space or a rehearsal room or something. Everybody's got their own spot where they do their records. Same with me. It's my little spot. It's just that it's big and I got a Neve console. But that, that's, that's only because that's all I know how to do. If I knew how to run a computer and mix in the box and make it sound the way I make it sound, then I guess I'd do it. And maybe someday when, you know, maybe someday I will, but I, I, I doubt it, you know. I'm, I'm, what'll probably happen is that it'll all just happen naturally. You know, people will stop calling and I'll say, well, now I'm down to, I'm only working 50 days a year now, so I can't afford all this stuff. So I'll just be like a freelance guy, like I used to be when I started. If somebody calls me, hey, can you make a record? Sure, where do you want to work? Book a studio and I'll show up. And you can pay me whatever you can pay me, and we'll, we'll talk to the studio guy and say, well, do you have any 57s? Well, you don't? Okay. Do you have any electric voice mics? Oh, you don't? Okay. What do you got? I'll, I never heard of that, but put it up. Let's, let's, let's make a record, you know? So that, that, you know, that's, that's the evolution for all of us. Everyone will gonna, we're all going to zig, we're all going to zag, we're all going to do our best work however and wherever we can, because that's the job. Otherwise it's, otherwise, it's restaurant management or something, you know, or insurance, you know. I, I don't know. I don't know what other jobs we could do. I don't want another job. Was it, was it ever an option for you to uh, do a residency at a, at a studio that you liked? In oh, I did. No, oh, did? I, oh, absolutely. I was at, um, well, it's, you know, it, it's at 6,000 Sunset, which was United Western, and then it was Ocean Way, and then it was Cello, and East West. I, I worked there almost exclusively for about 10 years. Uh, so all my, all my stuff was there, and that's back in the day when I was you know, booking a couple hundred days of studio time a year. Also worked at Sound City. Lots and lots of records at Sound City. Lots of records at The Village. Lots of records at Sunset Sound. All the places that had a Neve console were the places that I wanted to work. But before then, I'd work anywhere. Any console, any city. Anything, just like we'll all do. If someone says, hey man, you want to come to New York and we'll make a record? Yes, I'm coming. Where are we going to work? I don't care. Does, does it have speakers and microphones? Let's go. You know, just, it, it, you know, it's nice to have a place that you trust, a mixing room that you know, and equipment that you know, but that just makes your, your day easier and the day's hard enough. But if you, you know, if I had to, if I was leaving right now to go to, I don't know, Hawaii to make a record with the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, I'd go. <laughs> and I'd make it sound great, you know. 
That's just that's just what you do. There's there's no there's no excuse. Like what there's no other option. You know, you can't say, well, I'm just in the box, so it's only going to sound so good. It's like I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. You know, I would just say, yeah, we're at my place. We're in the box, and I'm going to kick your ass because it's going to sound great. And then it will. When you're working with an artist, is there a code of conduct in the control room that you try to personally adhere to and have the guys that work with you adhere to? Like, are there topics you don't talk about? Do you not talk about politics? Do you not talk about certain things that you might you think might upset that artist or might distract from the session? Or is it all on the table? No, it's all on the table. I mean, we're all... You know, we're pretty, I'm pretty easy to get along with. And, you know, my guys are easy to get along with. I... I, you know, I, I'd love to get to know people better and hang out and hear all about everything, but there's really no time. I mean, there used to be time when you were making a record for eight, eight weeks, you know, eight to ten weeks on a record, and there was always time to take a break, or dinner was always a much bigger deal, and we'd take time, or sometimes you'd go to restaurants, it's like conversation, no, there's no time for that anymore. It's, it's a 12-hour it's a day, I'm, I'm in the door of my studio at 10.30 in the morning, and I'm, I'm out at 12.30 or 1.00. Sometimes 11 o'clock at night is early. You know, it's, it's just a lot of work. You know, there's a lot of parts. And I make simple records. You know, I just make rock and roll records. You know, two guitars, bass, drums, organ, hand claps, sing, background vocal, tambourine. It's, it's simple. You know, there's usually, usually like 40 tracks or 50 maybe. But Do you work until the artist is ready to go home? Or do you say, okay, I'm going to turn into a pumpkin, I'm burnt out? I try to keep it at 12 hours. Okay. Like when it... When it like I said, I'm in the door early, and then around 11 o'clock at night, you know, I'm like, maybe we got to start wrapping this up. You know, I, I like to get out of there by midnight because, you know, earlier you were asking me about, well, how do you balance the family? Yeah. Well, you know, when I was getting, if you get home at, when you have children and you're getting home at one or two o'clock in the morning, they don't know that and they don't care. Children get up and then, you know what? You get up. That's right. So I was the guy that I just, sometimes I'd just stay up or I would just get up. I'd hear the kids, I'd get up, you know, oatmeal, breakfast, hair combing, clothes, homework, take them to school, take them in your wife's car, fill it up with gas on your way back home so that she doesn't have to do it. You know, come on, think, 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 people. But, you know, it's, you do everything. And you just, you know, you just make it work. It's hard because you got to take care of the people in the studio. That's your family as well. And take care of those people at home. Because if you, if you neglect the home situation, then it really, it gets into this, it cuts into the studio a bit. Oh, yeah. Well, I've been, you know, I haven't had to go through any of that pain. I haven't had to, my wife and I are solid, you know, 33 years, which is, you know, the, the equivalent of 33 million years in rock and roll. So that's a long time. No, you just take care of it, you know. I mean, I only went through a very short period of time where I was irresponsible. And luckily it didn't last long, and luckily I didn't really hurt anybody. But I sure learned my lesson, and that's all you got to do. I mean, you got to, once you learn that lesson, don't unlearn it, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Temptation's everywhere. And like Willie Nelson said, I can resist anything except temptation. (laughs) I got a couple more questions, and then we're going to wrap up. I'm going to see if I can get maybe a couple questions in from the audience, but... What do you do? Have, have you had to encounter any serious drug issues with artists in the, in the course of your years making records that have really thrown a curveball and challenged you personally that you had to bring down the hammer on somebody? No, I, I'm, I mean, there's been a few, uh, been more than one artist hit the deck from, you know, too much of something or other. And uh, 
you know, sometimes people, unhealthy people, you know, their heart starts fluttering and they topple over. And there's been more than one paramedic in the studio when I'm in the studio. And not at my place, but back in the old days, back in the 80s, there was some, there was a, you know, there was unfortunately some drug addicts that were making records. And there, there still are, but it's, it's, it's much more healthy and calm and peaceful now. And I don't judge, you know, it's like if you can't work, all I got to do is just say, I'd like you to come in and hear something. And if it really sounds like shit, all I got to do is play it, you know? I don't have to say, well, I think you've been drinking and <laughs> your vocal is not good. It's like, I don't have to do that. But what if they say, that's brilliant, I love that, just to spite you? Well, I'll leave it on there for a couple of days. All right, great, let's use it, turn it up. Is that, are you just purposely trying no, not to be I'm not, I'm not going to be, a, no, 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 no. Like, if somebody really wants something, that's, again, it's their record, it's their money. Like, I'm here to help. I'm just a, I'm a helper. I'm a worker. You know, I think I might someday put my arm around him and go like, you know, man, I really think you can beat that guitar solo. Before we mix this, let's, can we just try that one more time? Because uh, it's not aging well for me. I, I wish it was better. Or I wish his vocal was better, man. You know, I was like, I'm here flat stuff. I hear sharp stuff. I, you know, I mean, we could tune it up for you, but then we're going to be tuning the whole thing. And I don't want to do that. You know, if you want me to tune it up, all right, but why? You know, you're a better singer than that. Let's, let's work. Give me something better. You do it with a lot of love. You know, just ask. Ask nicely. That's all. All right. So we have about, little, about five minutes left. Anybody got any questions? Come yeah. on up. Come on up. And I'll repeat the question. Oh, yeah. Do you ever have your wife or kids hang out on the session? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a, you know, it's a, I, I've kind of mentioned it, but we, we, we eat at the studio. I like to call it the plier's diet. I, you know, most musicians are broke and they're all going to eat Wendy's or In-N-Out Burger every night. And I can't do that anymore. I hate it, you know. So we started, I served lunch and dinner at the studio and lunch is a nice sandwich spread with salad and chips and hummus and fruit and vegetables and all that kind of stuff. And dinner is kind of the same thing, but it's just like salad and vegetables and, you know, and if somebody wants something else, they can order it. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to order anything. You know, like I got food in the refrigerator and I can make, I can make dinner for eight people quicker than we can pick a menu. Where do you want to eat? Oh, anything's fine. You pick. All right, let's go to the California pizza chicken kitchen. Oh, no, I hate that. A bunch of Republicans. I'm not going there. Uh, oh, but anything's fine. You pick. Okay, how about sushi? Ah, oh, no, sushi. Ugh. But, but anything's fine. You pick. All right, how about Mexican food? Oh, too spicy. I had a burrito for lunch. But anything's fine. You pick. And it's like, fuck. <laughs> can we just get, you know what I mean? It's like, so, you know, at 645, it's like, I give, I give my guy a, a heads up or if I, I, or I say to my guy, like, hey, cut this track together. I'm going to go make dinner. Out to the kitchen. Chop it up, make it up. Everybody sits down, bottle of wine. Everybody eats, talks. We're back to work in a half an hour or 45 minutes, where it would take a half an hour or 45 minutes to order from the menu book and order it and call it in and go pick it up and bring it back. And somebody didn't get their cream sauce and somebody didn't get their pickle. And it's a nightmare. So uh, my wife and kids come over. My daughter worked there with me for a little while. My son worked there with me for a little while. My nephew worked there with me for a little while. And, and uh, you know, my wife's lovely. The clients love her. You know, she, she, she puts in a, a frequent appearance and has dinner with us. And then we also try to have, at the end of every record, we try to have a playback party. If there's enough time and we can finish on the last night by 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock and know we're going to make it, we throw out an email blast and we get 100 people up there and we 
have beer and wine and I introduce my artist and we crank it up and we play it back and it's beautiful, you know, it's, uh, everybody goes off and has a good vibe. Wow. Yeah. I like that. Me too. It's fun. Other questions? Come on up. The history of your Neve. Where did it come oh, from? Thanks, man. Um, my Neve is a, an 8048. It's a 32 in, 24 monitor, 16 bus with an 8 channel echo bucket. And the 8 channel echo buckets all came from RCA Records in, uh, as, for RCA Records, both LA and New York. Mine came from uh, RCA New York. It was built in 1975 and it was there until 1995. And then Kataro bought it. Kataro is this Japanese ambient guitar player on Wyndham Hill, made a fortune. And I, I bought it from him in 2005. So it's, uh, it, it's perfect. You know, it's like Smithsonian quality. It's unhacked, un, unmodified. The only thing that's been modified is the monitor section is quad, one, two, three, and four in the monitor section. And I took three and four and made it a buffered stereo mix output, designated stereo mix output, and I can combine the two sides together. That's something that I did. And, uh, and it's great. So, and if I'm going to mix in surround sound or in quad, well, there's, you know, the, I got Pro Tools, you know, and Pro Tools is an incredible matrix and you can send stuff anywhere, even from the console. You can send stuff through other buses, out of sends, you know, you can, you can get it where you want it. It's not, it's not, that's not that hard, you know. All right. I want to thank my guest, Mr. Jim Scott. I want to thank our friends here at the Focal booth. And uh, we'll be hanging around for about, I don't know, five or so minutes. Thank you so much. And uh, if you've never heard the Working Class Audio podcast, please go to www.workingclassaudio.com, subscribe, and thank you for attending. All right. There it is, Jim Scott, live from the Focal booth, NAM 2016. What a great time. What a great human being and, and, a, and a, an amazingly talented engineer. It was a pleasure to do that. I, I'm honored to have been able to talk to him. And thanks to those who showed up, all those guys from Hybrid Studios. Yeah, I'm talking about you. And everybody else that I met there at NAMM 2016. Well, there's Cliff's music, Cliff Truesdale. And I uh, want to say thank you to Cliff and, and, of course, Chuck Smith. Cole Williams, hey, man, you're kicking ass. Thanks for helping me out. And uh, thanks to everybody I saw there at uh, NAMM. And uh, thanks to the sponsors, Gear Sluts, Audio Technica, Universal Audio, and Focal. There it is, number 58, done. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about Things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.